Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, energy historian, analyst, consultant, and I'll be your host. Today, it's my privilege to welcome energy writer and author Terry Edom to the podcast. Terry is a contributor to the BOE Report and has written an excellent book called End the Fossil Fuel Insanity, which I highly recommend. I'm going to put a link to it in the description. Now, our topic of conversation today is a range of things, but I would like to speak a little bit to Terry about the net zero energy transition in Canada and some of the challenges and maybe opportunities for Canadian businesses. So welcome to the program, Terry. Thanks very much, Tammy, for having me. I appreciate your work. Thank you. You know, you have such an interesting and varied background, and I'm wondering if you can just take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience, your background, and how you came to be an energy writer for BOE Report. Sure. Uh, it is an interesting path. I started off, uh, well, I guess, close there's 30 years now in the oil patch. I uh, landed here. I w- wasn't my uh, choice out of university, but it was great job opportunities. Like most of my, I'm from Saskatchewan, and the, my entire graduating class moved to Alberta, and most worked in the oil patch. It was just a, uh, it's, it was a dynamic, uh, thriving industry, and I just loved it. And it was quite a positive for a long time. And then um, I had a sequence of jobs. I worked for super majors. And then I, I, that was a little bit too much for me. And I moved down to smaller companies. And then I did a variety of things. I worked for a trading company for a bit. And then I um, landed a job just through an odd old connection. A, summer, a fellow ex-summer student that was running a pipeline company asked if I wanted to do their corporate communications because I, he knew I liked writing. And I understood the business side of things. And he thought that was a good marriage for what they were looking for, someone to help with their news releases and annual report material and that sort of thing. So I went to work for this pipeline company doing corporate communications, which is something I had not done before. And then I got immersed in the world of how the energy sector was actually uh, telling its message. And it became quite apparent that we were doing a very poor job of it. It was our, our communications focus was uh, towards either regulators or investors. And the um, this groundswell of anti-hydrocarbon uh, sentiment and political activity was sort of dismissed. Maybe because it's an engineering-led profession, it was like there's a attitude that the, this will all get sorted out. People will figure out that the, the how critical the existing energy system is and we can't change it that fast. And, and this will all, people will come to their senses soon here and they just, and then that, <laughs> that ship steamed right past and, and, and it never happened. And then, and then we know what happened now, then now, now there's a lot of uh, faulty policy that's out there. So my path into writing and getting more active in this field was, was actually, I started off writing with my own website. I created a website called public Ener- energy number one. And I started off explaining things to people because I thought there was a real gulf in understanding here. So I would write articles about this is what fracking is, or this is how you find oil and gas. And well, what is gas anyways? What does it consist of? And what is propane? And, and just trying to, um, to, to start from the ground up just as an educational profile and, and or raise the educational profile of the industry. And then it just got overwhelmed by the, uh, this, this negative battle we're in. I, I was writing six years, seven years ago, I was writing articles that we needed more wind and I was praising electric vehicles. I was a huge Elon Musk fan when he got going. And I, and I still think those technologies have their place and are valuable. But the, the way that the 
the tide has just turned this animosity against the existing system and then insistence that these new technologies can take over. It's just, uh, I don't know, I, we're headed for trouble. Yeah, they, that's a really good point. And um, I commend your experience. I mean, wow, that's amazing <laughs> that you've gone through all of those different things where you had sort of like boots on the ground. You see how things actually work. And, and you know, I really applaud your attempts to try and communicate what you've experienced and, and the energy reality. Um, and so I guess if we could talk about your book a little bit, since you mentioned it, um, I really enjoyed your, your balanced and oh, quite thorough thanks. examination of those tensions and issues. And I, I want to say, I just love your style of writing. It's so oh, down to earth and gets the point across. It made the pages fly by. It was, it was oh, really good. Oh, good. Good. Thanks. Yeah, it, and, it, it was, it was aimed at, um, my audience's audience, I guess, was how I tried to do it. And uh, if people haven't my, read my writing, it's quite informal and it's not academic and academically uh, sound and structured as something you would do, or or a lot of other uh, a lot of the uh, the good work that's done uh, in the these discussions. My goal with with the book was to to get up. I, I think that there's there's slices of the population. There's slices on the left that are crazy. There's slices on the right that are crazy. There's slices that care about energy. And I think 80% just don't until our bill goes up and or they're right. about to fill their vehicle or whatever. And, and I so this was aimed to that 80% that's saying like, here's something. I tried to make it entertaining and I tried to use real world examples and I tried to use, um, tried to make it something that someone would be interested in <laughs> because I've had a lot of conversations. Well, that's how I got started with my own website. I had a, a friend that I just like bounced a bunch of ideas off that was totally unrelated to the oil patch at all. And said like, does this make sense as a question? It's like, no, I don't even understand what you're talking about. <laughs> so that would be totally <laughs> relevant to me. So, so I just tried to peel it back to those levels that I think a lot of people are at with respect to energy. And, and now there's just a lot of noise fills their their ears and they they're like this none of this makes sense i'm being told that fossil fuels are killing the planet but i use them every day and i need them and i can't live without them but they're saying i have to live without them and and they're saying that i hear that wind and solar will take over but then i hear that it's killing birds or whatever and it's like it's just a bunch of cacophony so uh so that my my book was an attempt to reach those people Thank you. I was going to ask you what motivated you, and that's a good description. Didn't even have to ask it; you anticipated it. Well done. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you um, you wrote the book before COVID, and um, but of course before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So have those events altered your conclusions or some of the ideas that you presented there? I don't think COVID did, and I think the uh, the Russian invasion has. Um, muddied the waters, but I think it's accelerated what was going to happen. So it's, if, if I had a prophecy that uh, it's going to be much more difficult to, to move away from fossil fuels than a lot of people think and a lot of policies are implying, I think that the Russian thing just accelerated that. I think Europe would have ran into trouble energy-wise sooner or later regardless. I mean, you, you can see Germany right now, right? It's, they're, they're closing nuclear power plants and and they're replacing with intermittent power and, and it's just a disaster and i think that they, they were on that path regardless they were relying on russian gas which would have got them uh a lot more time to reach this crisis stage but i think they were headed that way anyways 
And I, I think that, so I think that that's all those things have done is, is to maybe shine a light on how critical energy supplies are. Maybe um, we see that with the global scramble for LNG with, with Russia being sort of cut out of the picture. I don't know that they're really cut out of the oil picture as much as people think they are. Uh, so it's more on the natural gas side with that, that vacancy there. But, but then we're seeing, and this is part of the point that I've been making all along and a lot of other people too, is that the, the developing world is we have a very ethnocentric view of what climate change means and how what we can do about it and 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 I think we get so absorbed in that in our own media space and academic circles and then the, the developing world the other seven billion people have their own agenda and we're starting to see that come out loud and clear now where where the the, the Russian invasion caused a squeeze on natural gas supplies and Europe outbid everyone like uh, for, yeah. uh, Pakistan literally had their checkbook out and, and the cargo ships were going past because they're all headed to Europe and Europe just outbid them. So, so they started building coal plants and India is doing that and China's doing that. And India has been very clear recently at the G20 summit saying we will not sacrifice our energy security and we will develop coal. They have big plans to increase it. So, so I, I think that there's, there's these, it's seemed for a while now that, and it's a tragic statement, but there has to be some calamity in the world before, we can get refocused on the the uh, what, what's possible and what isn't, and and that sounds negative and defeatist in one sense be, because you need a can-do attitude to make a new industry survive and to entrepreneurs need to believe everything is possible, right? That's what keeps them going, and we need that spirit. But I think if we if we had an environment where um, all industries were pulling in the same direction, if these if the if the activist governments of Canada and the United States and Europe, if they were saying we will harness all of the ability and all of the strength, financial strength and uh, capabilities of the hydrocarbon sector, and we will work with them to accelerate what we can do, they would be just a totally different world instead of this one where we're having them try and divest the starve the industry of capital or block infrastructure or these things that are just uh, and there, there's a talent squeeze coming, which is what the Canadian government has said they want. They want people to leave the industry. Well, it's going to happen. <laughs> like there's a lot of middle-aged people that are, are going to leave and then there's no expertise and we're going to need this resource and there's not going to be enough people around, I think, to, to do it properly. So, Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, my understanding is that there's been no decline. In fact, an increase in the number of engineering students in uh, petroleum engineering, whatnot, in China in Russia oh. and in in other sort of Eastern European countries. Yeah. So, Sorry. yeah, that's okay. So, you know, on the one hand, the West is saying we don't want this anymore, but then the countries who will basically keep using hydrocarbons are investing in education and encouraging students in that direction. So, you know, the, the labor crunch, you're right, is going to come. Are we going to then import people from elsewhere? Well, Will they just? What, will we? Are we doing the same thing with hydrocarbons that we've done with the with the um, rare earths and critical metals and minerals? Like we farmed out all of the processing to uh, to China essentially over the years, yeah. over the decades, and now they control it. And we're we're building battery plants, which are going to be totally reliant on their good graces in a sense, because they will they control what they want and they're. They're already putting up bans or on exports of certain materials. Yeah. 
well, what that, that could happen in petroleum as well. They might just say like a grad, uh, they, they have ways of controlling things, but we're, we're closing our petroleum engineering schools and they're cranking out more grads. That, how's that going to work? If, if we're lucky, we can get them to, to fill the spots here. But it's, there's petroleum engineering. There's like, I, I am a boots on the ground person. Like I, my arguments against the too rapid transition are built on, I call it the plumber's perspective where you can have an architect that designs the most beautiful thing and, and the people that actually have to build it are the ones that can say, I, I know from experience that's not gonna work. And I, that's what it's like here. And I, there's other occupations too. There's uh, production accounting and, and land management, land records keeping and uh, these specialized things that, that are people are just not going to be doing anymore. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I'd like to tie those two things together. One, if I can just go back a little bit to what you said about coal in Germany and elsewhere in the world. And it was just, a, I think today there was an article that Germany was uh, reopening its coal plants for the winter. Um, I, I guess that. they shuttered them over summer or something or, you know, uh, decrease their activity or whatever, but now they're going to fire them up for winter because I think you pointed out the, um, that they've, they're, they're forcing people to buy electric heat pumps and then they don't have enough electricity to actually run them and they don't really work very well in the wintertime. Um, when we lived in France and we were more in the, in the southern part of France, it got cold for about three weeks in the wintertime where it went down to about minus 10 and our heat pump stopped working. It just stopped oh. working. It froze wow. up. We had to buy electric radiators to keep the house warm. So yeah, I know technology's improved a little bit since then, but not that much. And if you want those those better heat pumps that can maybe withstand um, minus 10 or whatever, you're paying, you're paying for it a lot. And even so, it doesn't create enough heat to actually feel really warm. And that's been the complaint here in the UK that people who have converted to heat pumps, it's it's terrible. And it's like, oh, this is awful. I feel cold all the time. Um, and also, as you pointed out, India is increasing. I think there was an article today where they, they're increasing their coal mining by 40% and they're building more coal-fired plants. And with respect to China, they're building everything. So they're yeah, building they're more everything. coal, more yeah. nuclear, more natural gas, um, more and building more pipelines and solar and wind. So yeah. it's, they're doing all of the above. And meanwhile, we're trying to shut off stuff and. <laughs> yeah. Necessarily yeah. There's thing. a point about the heat pumps that I think needs to be taught to everyone on earth, not just specifically with respect to heat pumps, but there's this, um, perception out there that, uh, renewables advocates point towards the grid and they said uh, uh, all the naysayers said we couldn't do 20% renewables and now we're at 20% and now they said we couldn't do 30% and now we're at 30% and there and so they take this as evidence that the the march towards 100% renewables is is linear somehow and th that's just such a, an unbelievably dangerous conclusion and the primary reason being is and I use the reference of Nassim Taleb's uh, Turkey analogy where I've a turkey has 365 wonderful days of life where it's coddled and fed and heated and then and then it has one very bad day and people need to keep that in mind with respect to heat pumps or heating systems or a power system is you can get to 60 or 70 percent renewables maybe and that might work just fine but when you really need it in a real 
heat wave or a real uh, cold spell, which doesn't necessarily last one day, it can be two weeks. That, that yeah. is when um, wind works the worst. That is when solar works the worst. That is when batteries work the worst. And that is when heat pumps are, uh, people turn them up as far as they'll go so that because they're not getting enough heat. So they're going to have them cranked to the max. And everyone is going to have their heat pump cranked to the max at the same peak time when, when electricity demand is the highest. So everyone that's ever worked with an electrical grid knows that the, the the grid operators build for the peaks you have to and there's one, yeah. one way you can do that it, one way you can manage uh, the energy transition is to shave those peaks you can convince industries to shut down you can pay them if you're making i don't know a manufacturing facility you can give them an incentive an economic incentive to dial back their power consumption at the peak that works to a certain extent but if you're going to replace that with a demand that's going to accelerate at the wrong time which is what heat pumps are and the equivalent or baseboard heaters even you're just setting yourself up for an absolute catastrophe in an, in an extended cold spell we saw that in texas and yeah. when that that cold hit and that wasn't even record-breaking cold like people talk about that it was and it was not there was no winter records broken not for snowfall not for temperature not for duration it was just it happens in texas and the um the renewables advocates blame natural gas because there were some freeze-offs and there were some freeze-offs it's true but but natural gas output ramped up to like ridiculous amounts and then there were freeze-offs so that it couldn't meet that peak and and there those are the fault of operators for not uh, uh weatherizing their equipment properly in canada here we never have that problem well his not wood we have never yet had that problem in minus 40 the natural gas system functions absolutely flawlessly and there's no reason it can't down there in minus five temperatures other than the fact that they haven't taken the right precautions so so the, the we're getting we get lulled into these false senses of security and they there we we talked a bit briefly about before the show started about how um there's these institutions out there that are very careful about making politically correct statements and they don't want to step on the wrong toes and they don't want to say the wrong things and we even see that with grid operators where they're they put out a report there's a uh, re, uh, four largest uh, grid operators in the Northeast U.S. representing 30 states and 150 uh, million people um, issued a statement saying we're introducing uh, unreliability into our system here and this is potentially very dangerous and we need to be cognizant of this because we're, we're shuttering coal and gas-fired power plants too quickly and, and it was a very meek statement but it's 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 an it's an unbelievably important statement they're saying this is coming if we don't do something different, this is coming, but they said it in a politically correct and acceptable way. And it was just, it didn't even make the news. It was like, oh yeah, they're saying we have to, we have to plan for more renewables. It's like, well, is that what they're saying? Or is it far more ominous than that? So that's, yeah, that's a good point. A lot of problems that are happening just because we, because everyone is scared to say something. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you don't point it out in stark terms, it's like you say, people just, it gets dismissed as, oh, okay, well, I guess that means we need more renewable or everything's a-okay except for this little thing. And and in fact, it's, no, it's actually- It's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay, it's not well, okay. Um, there was a, I follow, oh. do, do you follow the work of Meredith Anwin at all? Oh yes, I love her work, she's fantastic. Yeah. Because she points out a lot of these issues with grids and 
and just the, the, the difficulties in trying to get things done and how it's a problem when the stakeholders are insiders because then they don't get any real world kind of uh, feedback on what the problems are or if, if it's all of these little groups together um, not really planning appropriately or feeling like they're they're uh, hold into what the politicians want rather than what's actually necessary, then it creates all of these terrible things on the grid that's unreliable. Well, I think so. It's it's and it, the pressure is immense because it's uh, because if you say something against it, then you're accused of being against the science or you're a climate denier or or whatever, and it's that that's irrelevant to the to the climate discussion. Even in my opinion, it's like this is functionality that is required for survival. There's one more little anecdote I'll give you because it's, I'm sure no one's ever heard of it, but in January of 2019, Rhode Island had a um, near critical situation. There was a, a cold spell that lasted a week or two. And there was such natural gas demand that depressurized their system. And, and a natural gas delivery system has to op be at a certain uh, operating pressure. And th there was, the demand was so great that it, it caused a, the risk of failure of the entire system. So they shut in customers and the grid operator said, it's extremely cold tonight and we are shutting down certain legs of service. I think there were 7,000 customers that got shut off and there was a state of emergency declared. And the, the governor said, this is an emergency. Take people into your house. Churches, please stay open and welcome people in. People will die if you don't do this. And it was, but it, it never made anything other than the local news. And it was, and, and the almost most of the history of that is now not even, you can't even find it on the web. There's a few little snippets about the, the near crisis, but it was averted. And it's just the sort of thing that people do not want to have in the public consciousness that this, these risks. So it's not only the risk is being um, exacerbated by these policies, but when there's evidence of to the, that this is in fact a rising risk, it gets downplayed or not reported or it's it's just a very bad spiral we're in here. Wow, I had totally forgotten about that 2019 event, and so thank you for reminding us yeah, of things that happened. Like what like what happens if if it is a bad winter? Like last year, um, in conversations with people about what the EU was doing, you know, they managed to escape anything really terribly devastating because they got lucky, and it was a warm winter. Very but they started addressing that or thinking of that luck as their brilliant policy um, <laughs> because they basically, if you look at Germany energy use in their industry, it is it bottomed out because they had factories tooling down and so on. So they weren't using the, the energy, not quite like, well, when it's peak, shut it off. It was like, no, they just, they ramped down you know, just shut everything off kind of thing, or, you know, down to 20% of activity. Um, and so here in the UK, they, they're putting forward an energy bill. It's before the Lords right now. I think it'll probably be passed next week where it has that if they need to, the government can use load control, which means they can access um, the smart devices or whatever in order to control the load at any given time if they feel like the grid is in jeopardy. And people don't really understand what that means. Now, last year in the UK, what they did is they offered people money to not use energy. So they they tried it out on a voluntary basis. I think it was like a million people. 
if you don't use energy at peak time or whatever, we'll pay you 20 bucks. And um, they're planning to do that again this winter. And you, you have to hope that it's not a very bad winter because That's people who problem. take that up, I mean, if it's really cold, um, in our little village, they were, they were having um, community warm spaces, which is kind of like what you talked about, what happened in 2019, um, where they would say, for all you old people <laughs> or other people who can't keep their houses warm, come to the village hall. There'll be warm soup and tea, and we'll, we'll help you keep warm for the day. Like, oh, my gosh. I thought, wow, this is this is not good. We, we're, we're a developed nation. We're advanced yeah. technologically, and that's your solution? Instead of improving the grid and, and using what we've got. Um, and I think it goes back to something you said earlier, that we're approaching an energy transition before we've actually got an adequate replacement. And it's kind of like quitting your job before you have another one lined up. That always ends in disaster, unless you're lucky. And I don't think... Um, Western civilization's that lucky, <laughs> you know, that we can I don't think so. I don't you know, think invest so. in all these different things. And so this brings to the point about innovation, because you talked earlier about, um, you know, if there's other ways that we can innovate and, and maybe move things along in a more sensible fashion instead of just throwing everything at something that doesn't necessarily work. And so what's the feeling like in Alberta with respect to innovation? Because my understanding is there's actually quite a lot going on in the province right now um, in carbon tech and um, maybe they're only in demonstration and prototype phase, but there seems to be a lot of energy and money being put forward to a lot of these um, different ideas. Do you think that maybe there's being too much in that direction or is it, what's, what's the feeling like in Alberta? Uh, so it's, it's becoming a strided feeling, I would say. There's, uh, well, first of all, I would say, and I'm, I work for a small uh, natural gas producer. We have about 25 employees, but we have two full-time people, including myself, that is working on new energy innovations, uh, carbon reduction, uh, new ways to, we're trying to find a way to utilize waste wood in our region um, to uh, Im improve efficiencies, develop renewable natural gas. And I would say I easily know, and I'm picking this as a conservative number, I know five times as many people that are working on new energy things, carbon reduction things, as I do are looking for oil and gas. So the, there's just an incredible wave downtown. I, I know I know one, one of uh, a friend of mine who's like uh, the most hardcore anti-climate person I know, and uh, very right-wing spectrum now has, has doesn't work in the oil patch at all anymore. He's taken all his expertise and he's working for hydrogen development. So it's so that there's the that's a, a very frustrating misconception out there, which I'm trying to address a little bit more in, in articles, is that there's this feeling that people are just dug in and 100 percent defensive about the survival of oil and gas as a as an ongoing entity and source. I think that most energy people I know are excited by new forms of energy and they grab them wherever they can. We've had solar panels on our well sites for 10 years, like, and they're great. They serve a very specific purpose and they're, uh, so I think that, that there's, um, that's what I meant earlier about if we, if we channeled the industries to be pulling in the same direction, if there was incentives, there's this ominous feeling and it's explicit from like the federal government in Canada, like that we don't like your industry and it has to go. And it's the same in the U.S. from the Energy Administration, the Biden administration. 
and then but then they'll say like we need a little bit more when we need it like just stick around in case we need you for a while but but we want we want all your employees out of the industry we're going to uh, i've heard anecdotally that there are uh, the government actually approaches students to say that the re few remaining ones that are in in petroleum education to like we'll we'll make it worth your while to go elsewhere the, so we, uh, there's incentivizing people to go into the renewable side of things so so it's a very um sickening kind of an atmosphere where you have this this overhanging feeling that there's there's somebody with great power and authority that's out to get you and at the same time everybody's working very hard to uh to to, to make a transition happen and, and i think from the the plumber's perspective which is what i think we are we provide energy and if there's you can there's the odd person that's against nuclear but a lot most people down here are, are in this patch are in favor of nuclear and if you want to make enormous quick global emissions reduction progress you would develop nuclear as fast as you can at all three levels there's micro generators which the u.s government is pioneering at air force bases and they've used on nuclear subs and that makes phenomenal sense they're developing a micronuclear technology which can fit on a semi-truck and be running within weeks like what could that do to displace fuel oil demand in small communities that's wonderful i, I wholly endorse that sort of thing there's small nuclear reactors which could displace i don't know two to four billion cubic feet a day of natural gas consumption in the oil sands that's fantastic there's and then there's large-scale nuclear which takes more time but if you want to have rapid emissions reduction um, and you can stomach nuclear energy and some of these are much safer these smaller units go for nuclear energy uh, first of all do whatever you can to replace displace coal with natural gas encourage development of natural gas to displace coal that's how the u.s had such success in reducing their emissions so th th this is the low-hanging fruit go after coal with natural gas go after all of the above with nuclear and then in conjunction develop um, uh, one thing that I'm quite interested and excited about is the capacity for nuclear energy to develop hydrogen or and uh, something else is solar power to do desalinization of water. And I'm working on that right now as a story. Like, I think that's a phenomenal usage for solar in the regions of the world or California could be could be making water and they desperately need it in Arizona. They're doing this in the Middle East and they're yeah. th this where their investment focus is shifting. So those are the things I think you could be working on in parallel. And if you were working on those three things, or maybe four things, nuclear at multiple levels, displace coal with natural gas, and, and use solar in, in a way that that's more holistic, environmentally speaking, rather than just worrying about CO2 reductions, like if the, the world really needs water. So if you can, if you focus all the energy of solar on developing uh, uh, fresh water sources, that solves a host of other problems. And maybe you can irrigate more land and grow more trees, which would then help everything. I'm a big believer in planting trees and forests and greening the world. I think that's just good for everything. I think urban uh, tree canopies do wonders for cutting air conditioning use and they can in other parts of the world too. So uh, I, I think that, that I think as energy providers, we can, we can look at this systemically and say, there are a lot of things we could be doing. And we think that uh, hydrocarbons are going to be part of the mix for a long time so that's please don't kill us as an industry and uh but we'll we'll work on all these other things in progress but it's we have to work under this omnipresent threat that we're going to wipe you out that we have a greenpeace activist that's running our economic 
uh, development in Canada right now. People should think about that. People around the world should know that. It's literally a four times arrested Greenpeace activist now controls natural resource development in Canada. And is that a good thing? Is that is that what anybody wants? People disregard, the, the general mainstream is wise enough to disregard Greenpeace's more extreme statements because they understand they're an activist organization, but we have one running our government. <laughs> and I know there's other countries that aren't that far behind. The US, when when the Biden industry came in there, they, they, they populated the entire Department of Energy with non-hydrocarbon people. The entire upper echelon has no hydrocarbon representation whatsoever. Canada set up a net zero advisory body to advise the federal government how to get to net zero. It had no hydrocarbon representation. It had one peripheral person at the beginning and now he's left and now it's just it's union leaders it's uh climate activists it's diversity people it's and i'm not even going to get into that but it's that's the dom that that's dominating the energy discussion now is those voices right and and i think in canada in particular there's this move to exclude hydrocarbon voices from anywhere and you know it, when the word comes from the top that those voices aren't welcome in the conversation, um, then that's a problem. And this this session, apparently, the Senate Bill S243 is going to be discussed. It's gone through second reading in the Senate, and it's now before com will be before committee. And that would basically ban anyone who is served with a hydrocarbon company from sitting on a board. And various other things, which are just so unbelievable. unbelievable. So it's like, we don't want you here. And, and actually with COP28, there's this move to try and stop the hydrocarbon companies or fossil fuel interests from uh, participating. We don't want you here. Why are you there? They were all up in arms last year in Egypt because there was a fairly large contingent, relatively speaking. Uh, of hydrocarbon companies uh, represented at the COP. And um, at the Canada 2020 conference a couple weeks ago, uh, Gerald Butts and some other people were lamenting the fact that um, the hydrocarbon companies were having a voice, that their voices weren't welcome, they shouldn't be there, and that these multilateral uh, institutions and conversations are only the purview of NGOs and politicians, no. so. And I, I think it's, uh, I feel sad for those people because they don't know what's coming their way. <laughs> they're they're yeah. used to calling the shots in Canada and in Western Europe and in the United States. And Gerald Butts, for example, is hugely influential and I believe he still is. And, and you're right, that's their line of thinking. And what, if from a geopolitical global perspective, if you look what's happening, BRICS is rising, right? And there's, the, the West is, is in effect being sidelined and we don't see it because we're we still think we run the world we're, we're still we still have our mindset of we're going to tell we're going to tell africa no you can't develop that pipeline and africa's finding an audience that's saying actually we will help you develop that pipeline but there's uh, the 350.org organization uh the powerhouse activist had a had a global campaign to stop stop the east the east african oil pipeline uh, and and that, that's just like how arrogant and absurd and, but they did convince 30 some banks to stop financing it. But I just saw the other day that, uh, I think it's Uganda. I'm not sure, don't quote me on that, but they're, uh, one of the leading countries has, has secured financing from 
uh, a bank in China. And they're like, so, yeah. so we're forcing the creation of, and, and maybe through energy alone, BRICS has been around for quite a while, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. It, it, it's been around for a while and they're just, they're kind of like, didn't really show up on the West's radar. And now they should be on the West radar because 40 some countries want to join BRICS and there's nobody fighting to join the G7 anymore. They're, they're, so they're aligning themselves with this powerhouse, which has everything. They have a huge market with China and India Whatever you think of Russia, Russia is a materials and energy powerhouse. Uh, Saudi Arabia is is in. Uh, I think one of the other Middle Eastern oil producing countries is in. Argentina. There, there's some very big, significant developing countries that are saying we're going to go with those guys because they're they understand energy security, they understand energy poverty, and they they they're saying you in the West, we're kind of tired of listening to you and we're going to do our own thing. And I think the Gerald Butts of the world still think that they're calling the shots. And I, and I think they're going to find out in a few years that they don't. I mean, you see that China flexing or uh, India flexing their muscles at the G20. They're just, they, they were very clear. They laid down the law that this is the way, this is what we, we're, uh, and uh, one of the, I saw a senior um, government person from India saying, we're not anti-West, we're just non-West. We're, we're, <laughs> we have our own things to worry about. And I think more and more people in the world are just aligning with their view. That's like, we don't have to take orders from those people anymore. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, with the, with the BRICS plus going forward, um, Everyone talks about the petrodollar and maybe this is the beginning of the end of the American dollar as being the international currency. And that may be so. It may take a little while to do it. Who knows? But I, I, I take your point about financing of those types of infrastructure projects, because when there's a there's a BRICS bank that is um, sort of run by China, it's largely influenced by China. Um, and, and they offer loans and whatnot similar to the way the IMF operates. And then there's the Chinese banks that, that do um, support different initiatives. And they made a commitment that they wouldn't support new coal in developing nations. But who knows what that means, right? And, and you know, it's an oil pipeline or a natural gas pipeline or something. Well, that's different. And quite often with the, with the Chinese backing of these types of projects is that there's no strings attached in terms of human rights and corruption and all these other things that when the World Bank or the IMF um, supports something, there's all of these other issues that they want addressed. Um, China may, you know, seize things afterwards if, if the debt is not repaid or, you know. That's happened. It's that's happened, happened. happened already. Yep. You, yeah. You'll, you'll uh, pledge your airport as collateral for this loan. It's like. And, right. And then when, when the corruption sets in and payments aren't made, then, you know, that sort of thing happens. Um, mm -hmm. One interesting thing, if I could juxtapose this a little bit to your recent IEA article where you were talking about um, the IEA coming out with their latest hyperbolic statements from Fatty Birol that, you know, no more oil and gas investment, no more coal investment, we're done, peak demand, all this kind of thing. Um, two weeks ago in Berlin, Larry Fink was talking with Bloomberg at an event and he, in the middle of the conversation, he said, oh, no, never divest from, 
from fossil fuels. We're going to need them for many years to come, and it's really important. And we we need to have more investment in it. And um, and I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition where you have Larry Fink, who has often said in the past in his letters, you know, you need to um, not invest so much and divest yeah. without di saying divestment, whatever. It's like, and he was he was also talking about uh, he was asked about ESG and stuff. And he said, oh, well, I don't use ESG anymore. I call it sustainability and decarbonization. And it's like, well, he doesn't talk about divestment in so many words um, before. And now I guess he's seen the light at once. Well, so. yeah, it's funny how he dropped those terms when all of those uh, attorney generals in the United States started uh, banning BlackRock from their financial <laughs> arena. That Then all of a sudden he's, he's a lot more um, compliant on it. But th those things are important, and they're like because for a long time that was just the dominant voice. There was, uh, uh, I mean, Michael Bloomberg is is was right up there, and he still is, and he controls a good chunk of the media, the business media. There's uh, Bill Gates was in there too, and and Bill Gates is now Michael Bloomberg is still on his train, but uh, Bill Gates is now uh, voicing similar uh, statements that would. Heretical equivocating, statements. equivocating to some yeah. degree, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> but it's reality returning to uh, to their consciousness. So it's there's there's and you're seeing in Britain there's been a bit of a rollback too in in some of the saying maybe this is we're going too fast or or we can't ban these things. I, I heard that the British auto industry was a bit upset because they don't like the uncertainty of this. Like they've already headed down this one path. And I think that I think that's part of the problem that we don't realize too is that all of these industries that have been told by governments that this is we, we will put in legislation that says there will be no more internal combustion engines. So therefore, you you feel free to invest as much as you can into this new future because we we will guarantee this happens. And, and but I don't think there's any guarantee that that's going to happen at all. I think that they're they're going to force that. We, we might wind up like Cuba where everybody nurses their vehicles for 30 years or 40 years because they just don't electric vehicles don't work everywhere some segments of that's why we need thought in this process there might be certain segments where governments could work with industry and say okay could we electrify every delivery vehicle in a city maybe you can and that's that's great progress do we need to diversify or do we need to electrify a farmer's tractors that makes no sense or <laughs> logging equipment or whatever these insane ideas that are just being captured in this net of uh, of unthinking policy so it, it's nice to see that there's there's cracks starting to show in in, in some of these foundations and maybe we're going to get back to a point and and to be fair i suppose there there's been a lot of good innovation come out of this panic that's been instilled in everyone and a lot of uh you, you asked earlier about what the mood in calgary was there's a, there's a bit of a hesitancy about a lot of new technology because a lot of the things that people are trying to break through we've known about for 50, 70, 80 years, like there, there were electric vehicles before there were gasoline vehicles and, That's and right, yeah. they lost out because the batteries don't work. And it's, well, the same problem remains. It's like batteries just don't work. There was that story out of Sweden that somebody was circulating the other day that Sweden is, or sorry, Switzerland, they're going to limit the use of electric vehicles in cold weather, or you can't charge them when it's cold because the grid will need the electricity. It's like, this is insanity. Are you, like, how do you, you can't even make this stuff up, but th this is the problem we're getting by going too fast. And and if we if we had 
sensible policies where we said this makes sense to electrify this sector of the economy or this mode of transport or whatever, then we could be making great strides. And, and I hope that we can get politicians in that will say to, to break it down into some of these compartments, say this works here and this works here and this doesn't work here. We, we, we literally put solar fields in near the Arctic Circle. Like this, under what circumstance could that possibly make sense? But we do it because it's there's a grant check there. So, yeah. Yeah, the subsidy farming. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's that, that's where the money is, right? That's where people go. If you want, if you're coming out of university and you can go to petroleum engineering school and be there with three other kids, <laughs> school is shutting down and everybody hates you. Or you can go into the renewable energy program, which is where all the money is and everything is rosy. That's what you're going to do. So I, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a generational issue we're creating here. So. Right. And, it, and it's, that the problem with the subsidies is that it's distorting everything. And so if this, and, and this is, this goes back to sort of my, my thinking around the net zero forced transition, because it's not natural. It's an unnatural oh. transition. It's, it's governments and, and certain interest groups pushing something, forcing something before things are ready. And I, I think about the rhetoric out there or the narrative that we can just swap one form of energy for another. We can just swap, swap the internal combustion engine for an electric vehicle. No problem, right? And we can just swap um, traditional farming with organic. And we can swap um, chemical fertilizers for manure. And everything will be okay. Yields will be the same and life will go on as normal. When the reality is not, it, it won't be normal. It'll be significantly smaller and meaner and colder and everything else. And so it's it's a complete societal transformation it's not just about the energy and so it, how 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 can this be communicated more openly i think maybe the grocery price inflation has been one way to sort of wake up people to oh my gosh this is this is yeah. the, just the beginning before things have really gotten bad in, and um yeah. I, I don't know what will happen yeah, and power prices are another barometer of that too. That there's this this uh, falsehood that's promoted that renewables are so much cheaper and the electricity is going to be cheaper when we have renewables. And then everywhere that they're touching, people's utility bills are skyrocketing, and 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 that catches people's attention. Uh, I know uh, people in the Maritimes that that have been utterly complacent about the carbon tax. It's like, oh, it's an annoyance. Yeah, the price of fuel went up, but I get the check every quarter and. And now that their utility bills are, are spiking and their heating oil is has this big tax on it, they're like, what is this? And and it, th that light goes on when they're, and it's just gonna get much, much worse. So, so I, uh, yeah. I heard our Greenpeace um, environment minister say that um, anyone who says the high prices of your energy bills is due to the carbon tax is misinformation. <laughs> yeah it's like the whole the whole fact check industry is now it's 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 run by misinformation employees Zars or something Zars. Yeah. <laughs> it, we're, it, it feels like 1984 but the, just a lot of the the speak that double speak that goes on and the re, redefinitions of what you believe to be true or the true meanings of words it's it <laughs> We just we have to get better as voters, and I don't think we will because in Canada the the federal government is just too good. Thanks to the Gerald Butts of the world, he is 
an unbelievable master at winning elections by the skinniest of margins and they know which swing ridings they need to win and they know which ones to put money in and they know they know how the game works and i i don't see any light at the end of the tunnel politically for like canada especially maybe in in europe or i don't i don't know what's going to happen in europe and the, the us is just like devolving into a madhouse right there you're going to have you're going to have a former you're going to have a crazed former game show host against the 90 year old man and that those are the two best candidates out of 350 million people you have to put up <laughs> to run the free world and it's right. kind of no, no better right it's there's yeah so yeah well I, you know and to go back to what you said about the the automotive manufacturers for example as the government giving them signals and they go and retool their their factories and whatnot um in, in the uk there was a couple who complained but there were others who were cheering and said yeah we're not ready this is great we're glad but they never got coverage um oh, oh okay with, yeah. yeah but with respect to canada um i think this is why the government's going to hold out with the NDP coalition until the last possible second, because they need to drag this out as long as possible um, before so that companies make these decisions, make these investments, and then it's very difficult to undo it. And um, and unless reality comes crashing through, but <laughs> I don't well, know. It doesn't stop them. I don't think the the uh, yeah. this sprung greenhouse springs to mind if anyone's old enough to remember that it was like a, a government boondoggle in new in newfoundland where the government decided to grow cucumbers uh as a way to stimulate a new industry and it was a purely government-run uh initiative and it of course it was a complete disaster they built this new industry and it just was a total flop uh and it, that's just kind of legendary that one but th this batteries could be the same thing and if you uh, take the the thirty-five thousand foot view of this Canada has a bunch of raw minerals and materials, which we are unable to process because we're not willing to put up with the environmental consequences. So we're going to ship them to China for processing because they have a big backyard and they don't care where they, what it looks like. And then they're going to control the inputs to our battery plants. It, it, to, so in order for us to use these $13 billion plants or whatever, we're going to be totally dependent on the country, which is going to be undercutting us in battery manufacturing anyways. They're, right. They they control the supply chains. They can do it cheaper than we can. They they will they will use coal power and whatever else to keep their costs as low as they can. And and, and we're building these weird, soon to be dinosaurs that that just have no hope of competing. But it's yeah. And you're right. There the 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 NDP is not going to give up. They're in power now essentially, right? They, they've yeah. Like the Trudeau government has not done one thing to anger the NDP. And the NDP gets a, a, a veto on every, all policy in Canada. So they're enjoying their moment in the sun. They could never get elected otherwise, but they're effectively in power now. So, so they won't give up either. So I, I, I don't see this ending. And then they, because just the way the Canadian electoral system works, I just see the risk of another minority government again. And if the conservatives get in, I don't know who would work with them for very long, that we just don't seem to work that way as a nation. And then, so I, I, don't, I don't know how we get out of this quagmire. Uh, the, yeah. the sad part, I, I tend to ignore politics to the extent humanly possible and uh, focus on energy. And But that's bad news on the energy front because I don't see how 
we avert a tragedy like the one I meant, the near tragedy I mentioned in Rhode Island a few years ago, one of those is going to happen soon. I mean, it sort of happened in Texas and people just blame natural gas, but at some point we're going to have a, a, a significant catastrophic situation. Imagine a minus 25 or minus 30 snap in Chicago and the power goes out. Like what happens to those buildings with 5,000 people? Where, where do they go? Yeah. Where, where, yeah. And then, and the pipes all freeze and you, you, you can't even repair it quickly when the temperature goes away. Like, it, and, and hospitals may, might, might not have power and senior citizen centers. And it, it's, it, there's, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's just horrible to think about, but we're, there's, there's nothing that will convince these people, I think, until something like that happens. That's sad to, to, to hear, but I, I kind of feel the same way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know that you've taken a lot of time so far and our time's running out. And so I wanted to just um, ask you, where can people read your insights and follow your reporting? Oh, sure. Uh, well, primarily, uh, I, I only had time to keep up with one website. So I, I stick with the BOE report uh, and, and I usually publish a couple of times a, a month there. And it's an oil and gas site, but don't hold that against us or them there. It's a, it's an industry trade publication and uh, but they, they do have a, a, a good staff of um, opinion writers uh, such as myself and uh, if I can call myself that and uh, uh, it's uh, I think trade publications I'll put in a plug for them not just the oil and gas ones but the mining ones and the technology ones and whatever else if people really want to understand what's happening in the world go to trade publications that's where the experts speak freely and that's where they the the um, academic research can come out in a purified form, and you can understand really what's going on. So so that's where I, uh, I, I they can find my work. And uh, my own website is Public Energy Number One, and I will start that up again soon. Although I'm tending to, and the energy world is is too uh, depressing some days. So I'm looking to write other things as well, and I'll probably take that in a different direction soon. And my book is available on Amazon, and. Um, Barnes and Noble, I think in the US, it's yeah, the end of fossil fuel insanity. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for taking the time out of your busy day to chat with me. And I'm going to put links to all of those things in the description so people can check out your work. And thank you. Thank you so much for all you do and for your insights today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.